as a result of him doing that, these people were coming to believe, but it wasn't a full-grown kind of a faith. And so here with Nicodemus, he's telling him, look, this isn't like that. This new birth is it's absolutely a miracle. It's absolutely a supernatural thing, but it's like the wind. You're not going to see it. You, there's not a physical manifestation, Nicodemus. There is a spiritual manifestation. You'll see the evidences of this in the lives of the people who have experienced it. And brothers and sisters, if your life does not show the fruit of that, you really need to examine yourself and ask yourself if this is something that's taking place. Ah, you think you've been in church for a long time. I'll tell you what. Sometimes churches have people that have not experienced a new birth. I went to, to church with a guy. He ended up being an elder in my church uh, back in California. And this guy went to church. He was a Sunday school. He was not in our church, but in a prior church. And he had done that for years and he was a very, quote, religious guy, uh, an, an upstanding citizen. He was a postmaster and, and all of that. And, and he loves to tell the story of his conversion because he had been well-churched. But he came to realize that he had never experienced this. And when he did, I'll tell you what, it blew the doors off of everybody around him because you saw the evidence of it. All of a sudden, this guy was different. This guy was on fire. This guy was alive because life had finally come into him. He had been trudging through, doing what he thought were the things of God, essentially as a dead man. And that's where Nicodemus is at. He had been well-versed. Man, this guy was a super religious guy. But he had never experienced this beautiful thing that Jesus is outlining for him. And he had never come to a place of seeing that it's not a physical manifestation. It, it, it was an intangible thing. And so as we drop down, look at it, verse 14, it says, we looked at this last week, and I'll just cover it for a moment because context is all important here. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we looked at length at the book of Leviticus where the serpent is loosed on the people of Israel because they murmured and griped and complained against God. And they actually complained against his provision with the manna. They said that they couldn't stand this stupid manna. That's paraphrasing, but they were really upset about it. And it was as though God from heaven said, that's enough. And he sent these serpents out and they began to bite the people and the people were dying. So they beseeched Moses, Moses, please, you've got to do something. So Moses prays and God tells him to put a snake on a pole in the middle of the camp that all a person has to do is look at it and that they would be healed. And so what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus in this is saying, Nicodemus, look, if I tell you heavenly things, you're not going to get it. I'm telling you earthly things and you're rejecting my testimony. And so how are you going to, get it if I tell you heavenly things. If, I, if I'm telling you physical things, if I'm telling you things in this reality that we know, this dimension, how are you going to understand if I speak of things from the dimension that heaven exists in, essentially? You're not going to get it. So then, I remember last week I, I mentioned Jesus shifts gears. He stops on that whole thing, basically Nicodemus, don't try to figure it out because you can't figure out these kind of things. There's no way to understand in in how do you explain the new birth? I mean, yes, we understand how that comes about through the Holy Spirit and all, but, but to where life is actually infused, imparted to us, 
how do you explain that I was dead even though I'm alive? I mean, those are spiritual truths that we've come to know, understand, and believe in if we've been Christians for a while. Yes, but this is brand new to him. So he's really struggling. He's wrestling with this whole thing. So what Jesus does is he gives him a physical example with the snake on the pole. And that is the only time that that whole thing was referenced from back in the backwaters of Leviticus. I mean, who gets really excited about studying Leviticus? I mean, yeah, I do, but, you know, I like to teach the Bible. But truly, there's not a lot there that that he was able to glean from. And yes, it is God's word. I'm going to try to put it down. But this one little story Jesus leans on to bring home the truth of the new birth. So as we go on, and, and what he ends with is he says in verse 15, whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now that's, we borrow that from verse 16, but when we look at the context, Jesus is linking the snake on the pole with the new birth and with what he says in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's just that simple, Nicodemus. It's just that simple. You simply have to believe that I am who I am and that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to be lifted up like the serpent on the pole. And all you have to do is look to me. That's the linkage that he's doing. And of course, that brings us now to the most famous verse in all of God's word. I mean, if you want to quote, if you want to have a summary of what God is about, it's right here. And and John 3.16 is 25 words. Now, Let's say that I was a student of military history. My oldest brother, he'll be here next weekend, by the way, looking forward to his visit. My oldest brother, Jim, is a student of military history. He loves military history. And I mean, the guy, I mean, he aces when the Jeopardy column gets to military. He's like, he's way ahead of me. I don't get it. I mean, I love history, but I like more ancient history. But it's like, he knows so much. And if I told him, okay, Jim, boil military history in the United States down to 25 words or less. Where do you start? Where do you start? You see, because the more we know about something, the harder it is to distill it down into something very, very simple, where Jesus takes the entire plan of God. Here we see in this 25 words, we see God's heart exposed, we see his plan exposed, and we see his will exposed. Jesus exposes it all in 25 words because in his heart, he exposes that God loves the world. And when he talks about the world, he's not talking about a physical planet, you know, earth, water, sky, all that. He's talking about unredeemed, unregenerate, sinful man. He's talking about the world. And when we look at the world in the New Testament sense, that's what we talk about. When we talk about that person's in the world, well, we're all in the world if you look at it in a physical sense. But again, in a spiritual sense, if I'm in the world, that means I'm not walking with the Lord. That means I'm not part of the kingdom. And, and it's very, very clear, guys. God boils these things down. When you know, we look at, well, that person sitting on the fence, there is no fence. You're either in the world or you're in the kingdom, one or the other. It's that simple. Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. You know, it's, it's, there is no, there's no middle line other than a, a, a very thin line of you're on one side of it or the other with these issues. And so when we look at this, we see that God is very, very simple in his approach to us. It doesn't t- take, you know, a seminary degree or, you know, a theological, deep theological understanding of all the deep doctrines of God. This is really simple. 
but it's the most profound verse in all of God's word because so much is revealed. I remember in uh, Bible school, young Christian, been studying for months and all of that, and uh, had totally given mental assent to the fact that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Yeah, well, they'd warn us about that in Bible college. Now you guys got to be careful. You know, you're getting a lot of knowledge here, and that can puff you up. And, yeah, yeah, well, that's not going to happen to me. I was puffed up in my estimation of that. And I remember going into one of my teacher's uh, office one day and saying, you know, Ron, I kind of got this, the basic stuff of the gospel, kind of got that down. I mean, I think about that now and I just think, how arrogant. But I, I kind of got that down. I want to move on. I want to know the really deep things now. And he just looked at me and he was so gracious. But he looked at me for a long moment and he said, that's interesting, John. And I've learned since then that when somebody says that's it, and if I tell you that's interesting, that doesn't mean I'm going there. But if somebody says that's interesting, very often it's like, not going to say what's in my mind. (laughs) And he was gracious enough not to. So I want to encourage you guys. This is not, uh, yes, obviously, John 3.16 is where we take someone when, we were sharing, when we're sharing the gospel. Very often it's where people go because, it, again, Jesus distills the message, the plan of God down into this simple verse. And, and it's been very widely used and continues to be, and that's a good thing. But don't click off because you know it. It's not just for beginners, This is some deep stuff. This is the deep stuff of God. This is the heart of God. This is the plan of God. This is the will of God revealed in one verse. We're going to look at nine things that are revealed here in this passage. Uh, I want to look at this, and we're we're not going to do an exhaustive look at each one. I mean, there's not time for that. But I do want to kind of go through it, and I want to look at John 3.16 for a while and take some things and draw some things out of it. There are things that are here. I'm not making this up. This is really good stuff, and it's not good stuff because I'm doing it. It's just good stuff because there's so much packed into this one verse. Nine realities from John 3.16. We see God's nature and character revealed. Okay, we see the love of God. We see the world explained. We see that he is a giving God, that he is a blessing God. He loves to bless. If you blow the dust off of that, guys, we serve a God that loves to bless. We see the son and his interaction with the father. We see what the Bible calls here is the whoever's and the whosoever's. (laughs) We'll talk about that. We see the importance of believing or faith, but also the object of faith and the condition for the gospel. We see death perishing forever, okay? Eternity exists for everybody. But he talks about eternal life as opposed to perishing here. So we see perishing forever, and we also see living forever. We're going to look at those as we go and and understand every single one of these are absolutely undeserved. Absolutely undeserved. What is more relevant? Truly, guys, what's more relevant in life than what God says about these subjects? I mean, this is the core. 
as I mentioned, doesn't get any deeper than this. So the first, for God. I want to look at six things about God. Again, we're breezing through this. If you're a note taker, catch it on video later (laughs) because we're going to go fast. Um, The first thing we see about God here is that he's personal. He's not some far off God that he, there's a, a sort of a popular notion out there in the world that God kind of created everything for people that will, they're deists, not Christians, that God kind of created everything and he kind of gave it, a, gave the earth a spin and kind of pushed it off and he's impersonal, he's distant, he's far off. He, yeah, he's the creator, but he's not involved. And that's just not so. He is a personal God. If he wasn't a personal God, he wouldn't have done what he did. As a person, the second thing is he thinks, he feels, he loves, and he hates. He is a person, and that he is a person means he experiences things that a person does. Now, he's not a human, except in the person of the Son, the, but to the, the person of the Father, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We'll get there in John chapter 4. But, but that he is a person and his attributes to his character and his nature are revealed in his word. And so we see that as a person, what does that mean? Well, it, for one thing, we are created in his image. But no, we don't get the omnis, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all that. We're, we're not all powerful, all knowing, all that. But we do receive, he, was, he did create man in his moral image. And when we talk about that, the third thing is that he is a moral God. Uh, he understands right and wrong and good and bad. And so he makes judgments on those things, not because he sets the standard, but because he is the standard. He is the standard for morality. He is the standard for perfect righteousness. And what righteousness is, is doing right things. He never does anything wrong. He's God. And so he sets this perfect standard and he defines morality. He's the definition, not of the standard, but he himself in his person is a moral God. We also know that he's holy, separate from and above us perfection as relates to infinity. Try to wrap your mind around that. I mean, each one of these guys, we could spend hours talking about, and we could jump around in different places in God's word where that it's discussed in detail. And, and really, I mean, this is, there's a lot here. Uh, I mean, if we wanted to do John three sixteen, we could probably spend the year of 2018 talking about it. Seriously. So he's holy. And because he's holy, and we are not in our fallen state. We are sinful. We're not sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. We have a sin nature manifesting as deeds. We call those sins. And so there is, there's the difference. There's the tension that is created between God and us. And there's this tension because we are sinful and we are unholy and he is holy and he is pure, infinitely pure infinitely perfect, infinitely above us. And yet he loves us because he is personal. Do you understand the tension? So this tension here, that's why he did what he did. We see also that God is just. I've said many times to Christians or to people, you really don't want justice. You know, Mercy is 
well, not getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. I want a merciful, I want to do business with God and, and his mercy. I want him to be merciful. I want him to be compassionate towards me. I don't want his justice because if I want justice, hell is within my grasp. Nobody, God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves. We'll look at that as we go. It is very clearly illustrated here in this passage that, and, and in this verse that it's not God's will for that to happen, but it does because he is just. He can't not judge sin. It has to happen. Oh, I wish I could go into detail and depth on that. But for that, six things about God that are revealed that we can look at here and see why there's this tension, why there is this, this enmity with God towards man and man towards God, why man is hostile towards God. And we'll look at that more as we go further in the Gospel of John here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul wrote, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So, interestingly here, Paul talks about the tangible, since the creation of the world, and the intangible. His attributes are clearly seen. So what he's saying here, again, we see both of those and where people get tripped up, guys, and, and this is a big thing because we by nature want to walk by sight. We don't want to walk by faith. I want to walk by what I see. I want to... I want to interact with the world around me based on what I see, based on the input that comes. I don't want to walk by faith. I certainly don't want to walk by grace. Have you noticed that very often people want grace, but they're kind of short on giving it? It's true. And I, I pray that we grow in the grace and knowledge of him in this body. Because I want for us to be people who are gracious, that the first thing that comes out of me is Grace. Because we are also utterly reliant upon the grace of God. There is nothing else that, by which we can stand before him. This is God's grace in action. So the question here is, you want to go grow closer to God? You want to have a greater understanding? You want to know him better? I don't, I don't understand how he tells us heavenly things and he brings them into this physical realm. Again, that same thing that Jesus talks about. And he brings him, and he uses what he calls the foolishness of preaching. All right, let's all get up on Sunday morning, and let's go down to a building, and we'll, we'll watch a guy, and we'll listen to a guy read a book. That's not what's happening here. The Spirit anoints the speaking and the hearing. We come with an expectation not to hear John or to hear some guy teach. We come with an expectation knowing that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and that he is the one who takes the word of God and by his spirit drives it into the hearts of the people of God so that they could come to know him better. I marvel that this is the way that God set it up, but that's what it's about. It's not about me coming up here and telling you all about my life. It's not about that. It's about his word. It's about his spirit. It's about having experienced the new birth. Now you have ears to hear and eyes to see. It's not just going down to a building and watching a guy read a book because this word of his is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and it's all his word. We don't get to pick and choose. The next thing we look at is so loved. (laughs) 
For God so loved, that's his love for this world. That's his love for that person that drives you nuts. That's his love for the people that just don't seem to ever get it right. That's his love for that person who has slipped through society's cracks that maybe doesn't have any teeth and is really, really skinny. Perhaps they're in bondage to a a substance that they've abused for a long time. I told the pastor once, let's put on the reader board out in front, meth heads welcome. And I meant it. That that person has become entangled in that. And, And the response is, well, what if they steal our stuff? Let them steal our stuff. Scandalous, huh? Yeah. That's the heart of God. That's the so loved. You fill in the blank. But I'll I'll invite you, brothers and sisters, do what I do and what I had to do as I studied for this. I had to put my name at the front of that list. Because the Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of his glory. So, I remember a kid that worked for me, and uh, he's not a kid anymore. As a matter of fact, he's a pastor, and he just went into full-time ministry at the 1st of December. He's one of my sons, not by birth, but by choice, and he and his wife, son and daughter. Um, This guy, the first time I saw him, he was riding on top of my daughter's back acting like a monkey in high school. And it was Bill... Get off of Jessica's back. You do not have my blessing on that, buddy. Knock it off. You're going to hurt my kid. And I mean, he was, just, he was like right and jumping around and doing all this crazy stuff. And, and as the years went by, I hired this guy, right? And so, and he and his wife came to the Lord. I tried to lead him to the Lord. And finally, God just touched their heart. And they just, they kind of hit the ground running. But I worked for, this guy worked for me for 15 years. And we'd get in the truck after he came to the Lord, and, and we would talk. We'd have these conversations, and he'd ask me some spiritual thing. I'd say, you want the short version or the long version? He'd say, well, how far are we driving? And I'd tell him, well, give me the long version or give me the short version, depending on what it was. And it was a wonderful time, uh, listening to teachings all the time, and I mean, just this discipleship that was going on and all that. And I, I started laughing at one point, and I said, Bill, let me tell you something. He said, what? I said, have you ever noticed that most of your childhood stories end with, and then the cops showed up? Almost every way. He spent most of his childhood in the back of a car. His parents were drug dealers, doing all this crazy stuff. But I saw this guy, and it, God really spoke to my heart, just touched me one day, because I realized when I met Billy, he was like 200 feet in the hole. I mean, he had no social graces whatsoever. He might just walk, and you never knew what was going to come out of this kid's mouth. I mean, some of the things I would never even try to repeat but I watched as he grew, and I mean, this guy, he just grew in wisdom, and he just, the Lord just got a hold of his life. And I watched his family even out, and his kids coming up, and wonderful kids, and his wife. I mean, it's just been a blessing to be a part, just to have a window into their lives. But what I, what I realized one time, guys, was that there were people that kind of looked down their nose at Bill, because he was so rough. And there are people in the church. Oh, yeah, him. But thinking about it, let's say that you're not 200 feet in the hole. Let's say that maybe you're 50 feet in the hole. And a couple, three, four years go by, and you've grown. 
You're not 50 feet in the hole anymore. You're only 25, 30 maybe. Bill's grown too, but he's not 200 feet in the hole. Now he's 70. He's still more in the hole than you are. But who has grown more? See, we tend to grade on the curve when it comes to people's behaviors. God doesn't do that. That's why he says that he so loved the world. These people that Jesus died for, the ones that he hung out with, the people that you see him identifying with in the New Testament were not the most desirable bunch. And in my own piety, I've had to get over that. I'm just being honest. Get over it. Yeah, who are we? Who are we to stand in judgment of another, of someone that Jesus died for? He didn't just love. He so loved. Now, if I tell my wife, honey, I love you, most phone calls end with that. And I mean it. But if I look her in the eye and I say, I so love you, how much more intensity does that convey? He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. He so loved. This is a type, it's an intensity, and, and it's a magnitude of love that's uncommon. And yet it's common for God. That's the kind of love that he loves you, he loves me with. He so loves you. He so loves me. I would imagine by this time Nicodemus is starting to back up a bit. Remember, he's talking to Nicodemus here. Because to Nicodemus, God was impersonal. God was rigid. God was boiled down to a set of rules and lists of obedience. We talked about that. And that was their idea, their vision of God. They had relegated God to their own understanding, which is to lower God infinitely lower than he is. And so this is radical stuff. The other thing about this love is we talk about the nature, the character of God. God is not loving these people for no good reason. He has a purpose in mind. But by his very nature, he is love. And his character is such that he puts his love for man way up there on the list. He's not acting for his own sake, but for ours. He could have been satisfying his own desire for power. He could have been calling the universe to beckon to him, to to bow to him. But he does this whole thing that he so loves the world that he gives his only begotten son that he would express his love towards us. That he would put his love ahead of his need to judge. Yes, judgment would happen. And were it not for Jesus coming, going to the cross, we would be without hope, period. End of story, because he is holy. So he's so loved. The next thing is the world. As I mentioned, fallen mankind, fallen humanity. (coughs) The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one also says that our righteousness, the stuff that we think we can produce, is this filthy rags. And I'm not going to give you a literal description of what that means because it's really not pretty. 
In John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. That's the world that God sent Jesus to die for. It's the pool of humanity that makes up the whosoevers. As I mentioned, there's two choices. There's the world or there's his, there's his kingdom. The next is he gave. As I mentioned, God is a giver of gifts. He's a blessing God. And he blessed humanity with his son that he gave, freely gave his son. And this is a giving from heaven to earth. And Jesus said that. He said, I'm the one that's come down from heaven. It's also a giving to die. Think about it. I come up to you, I say, Lee. Hi, Lee. Look, I got some people that hate me. And uh, I'm going to send you to them. And, and Lee... I know you're going to appreciate this. They're going to beat you. They're going to spit upon you. They're going to torture you. And they're going to kill you so that I can have a relationship with them. Is that all right with you? The father taking this initiative is absolutely amazing, guys. To the creator, becoming, coming, not just coming into his creation, but becoming his creation, becoming a human to experience the things we experience, but not just that, to be hated by his creation when he comes. Just celebrating Christmas, we talk about the baby in the manger, and we talked about that. We talked about the gift of God. Yes, absolutely the gift of God. And the, this created world that Jesus stepped into that hated him. You know what God's response was? He so loved that world. Why do you think Jesus said, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing from the cross. Still loving, still giving, still blessing. It's his, dire desire, it's his will that none would perish, that all would come to repentance, that they could experience eternal life. That's the God of the Bible. That's this personal, loving, just, holy, gracious God. He gave this gift. As I mentioned, it's a gift to die. In verse 17, it says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God gave us Jesus that he might die. The fifth thing, his only begotten son. I want to point out here that he's begotten. And I grew up in a weird religion. They talked about the Holy Spirit having relations with Mary. That's the prevalent view of Islam, by the way. And it's just not true. In chapter 1, verse 1, we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. We don't understand how. Well, we know that Jesus existed before the incarnation. He didn't come into existence then. Somehow, the Spirit of God placed Jesus in the womb of Mary to be nourished as a human. She was a virgin. It's a settled issue. 
I'm not going to argue, not going to debate that with anybody. He's begotten. He gave his only begotten son. And there's, there's so much to this. I, I, and again, I don't want to take the time. We're going to run short on time as it is. But suffice it to say that when we talk about what it cost God to purchase you, to purchase me, it was expensive. It was really expensive. He gave his only begotten son. God the Father would come to earth and God the Son and by God the Spirit convey his wishes and work out his purposes for fallen, sinful, wretched, rebellious humanity. But he loved that world. He loves that world. He still does. That whoever, or in the King James, whosoever, it's kind of like all and y'all and all y'all. Yeah. <laughs> that whosoever, and the whosoever's here is every human being. God loves you. Do you really look at this personally? Do you sit there and look in the mirror and think, God loves me? That he loves me infinitely? That he loves me with a love that I don't get? I am not comp I can't I don't have the wiring to understand the depth of his love because it's an infinite love. But I can get that he loves me with that kind of love and that I'm one of those whosoever's. There's no lines here, guys. This crosses every line. It crosses every political boundary, it crosses every racial boundary, it crosses every economic boundary. There is no lines. We talked about that in Ephesians 2. Paul says that God broke down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He said there's no lines. It's all one. The gospel is equal opportunity. Whosoever. Expresses the free offer of the gospel. And the gospel goes out to all. It goes out to every brand of sinner. From the, oh, I'm a good person, and I give at the office, I go down and I help out at the food bank or the United Way or whatever it is. Sometimes those are the hardest people to reach because they don't see their need. But understand the need. You're a whosoever, so am I. And I'm so glad And he talks about believes in him. That whosoever believes in him. You ever sit there and think about not everybody's going to benefit from the work that Jesus did? Does that burden you? It burdens me. And I don't think it burdens me because I'm a pastor. It burdens me because I love the Lord and I know what he can offer, what he brings into a person's life. Oh, let alone eternity with him. little side benefit there. But I know that he comes not to just redeem us and guarantee us heaven and in his presence forever, but he comes to redeem us and to give us a life that's worth living. 
My friend's church in San Diego, I was telling somebody last week that he had a big church right on Interstate 8, and, and he had on the reader board out there, he, it said, marriages healed, or uh, marriages restored, children off drugs, relationships healed, inquire within. And people would come in, and they'd say, what is this? And he'd share the gospel with them. And more than once, he saw people step from death to life, from darkness to light, and begin to see that there's a life that's worth living. He says, all you have to do is believe. That's the condition. Okay, salvation is free, but it is conditioned on one thing. that You have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe in the work that he did. That faith is not just this empty faith in faith, because so often people say, well, my faith. And they'll go on to tell you something that is down here. That faith is worthless. But it's the object of faith that's all important. It's faith in him. Whoever believes in him. Remember we read in chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe and receive are the same thing. They're interchangeable. To receive him is a product of believing in him. I receive what I believe. So believing is the condition and Jesus is the object of that believing. The eighth thing we look at here is should not perish. When he talks about perish here, it's eternal damnation. I don't know any nice way to put it. There are some things I wish weren't in the Bible. I wish hell wasn't in the Bible. But it is. And I have to be faithful to his word. We have to be faithful to his word. I don't like the thought of somebody in torment forever and ever. But hell's real. Hell is real. And it's God's revealed will here that it's not his desire for anybody to perish. He doesn't want, because when he talks about perishing here, it's not just die, it's eternal torment. It's eternal separation from God. It's that person you're standing next to in line in the grocery store. It's that person down at the office. It's that person maybe in your own household that is perishing. In verse 18, we see that he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. And then down in verse 37, at the end of this chapter, he says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We've talked about the wrath of God. And yes, God is an angry God. His wrath will be poured out on sin. It was poured out at the cross for any who will believe because Jesus was the propitiate. We talked about that, that he absorbed the wrath of God for us. The last thing is to have everlasting life. You know, I've often said, and and it's true, that your eternal life begins at the moment of your conversion. 
at the moment you receive Christ, is at the moment that you trust Jesus as Lord, your eternal life begins. But I want to submit to you too, and I want to be careful with this, that your present existence doesn't go on forever. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. But everlasting life, I mean, you know, somebody said kind of tongue-in-cheek one time, and I laughed, and then I thought about it afterwards. I thought, that's not funny. That, that eternity is all about, it's just kind of like when you go to build a restaurant, it's all about location, location, location. Well, eternity is all about location, location, location. Everybody gets eternal life. It's either in the presence of God or it's being cast out of his presence and suffering for eternity. Can you imagine? I mean, we, we don't think about it a lot, guys. But do you realize there's a whole lot more written about hell in God's word than there is about heaven? There's a whole lot more. I, and I can only deduce why. I mean, you know, I heard somebody say once, well, that's because if there was a lot more about heaven, the suicide rate would go way up. But I don't think that that's true. I think that God just doesn't reveal it to us because we're not wired to understand it. It's Eternity's not, I mentioned before, it's not a whole bunch of days. It's not a whole bunch of days. It's to be in his presence forever. And I, I heard somebody say one time, oh, well, holy, 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 the Lord. Yes, I just can't imagine spending eternity doing that. Well, you're not there. But you've got to realize that when he's talking about have everlasting life, that this is a life. Yes, it starts at my conversion. And when I shed this body, it really goes into high gear. And we will spend eternity in his presence. Think about it. If you're a believer this morning, you will have a time. Well, time won't exist, but there will be an event <laughs> when you will look face to face into the eyes of Jesus. You will no longer need faith. You will be in his presence. Oh, I look forward to the day. I look forward to that moment when I can look in his eyes. And you know, I've, uh, again, I have a very firm idea in my mind, and you'll hear me say it again if I haven't already said it. Don't, don't get tired of it. I'll bet when we look at him that what we see is an incomprehensible love, a completeness, a genuineness, but, but a love that is so intense and that is so personal for each of us. So here's Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and he basically says, look, for God so loved the world, just like that snake on the pole, he so loved the world that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Humanity has two basic needs. The first is I'm guilty and I need forgiveness. That only comes through the cross. The second is I'm dead and I need life. And that comes by the Spirit. That's the new birth. Question. Do you live in the freedom in the life shown in John 3.16? Not, not, not giving him lip service, but do you live there? 
do you live in the understanding that this is grace personified? This is God's love at such a level that it's hard for us to comprehend. And yet it's very clearly stated there is so much in this verse. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In his first coming, Jesus comes as the judge, or not as a judge, but as the savior. The second coming, when he's on a horse, not a donkey, he comes to judge, and he will. The Pharisees, by the way, believed that Messiah was going to come to judge, and there are passages in Psalms, Daniel, Isaiah, Uh, that talk about the Messiah being the judge. And so there was some thinking that had to be corrected. Yes, that's future, but it wasn't the first coming. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. To stay in the condemned condition to not believe is to forfeit life itself. Think about it this way. Let's say that you're in prison. Or that you're going to visit somebody in prison. And this guy's there. He's doing maybe a life term, right? There's no, no way he's getting out. They're not going to just walk up to him, pat him on the head, and tell him he's going to go home. That is home. So, do you walk up to him and say, you know, we're going to get you a good lawyer? No. He's already been tried. He's already condemned. He doesn't need a lawyer. He needs a pardon. The only way he is going to get out of that state is through being pardoned. That's us. That's humanity. The only way we escape the clutches of this world is by the grace of God, by him issuing forth a pardon for us. That's John 3.16. That's what he's saying when he says, you know, if you don't have the son, you're already condemned. It's the state into which you were born. And I'm not going to talk about the age of accountability and all that stuff. I mean, I believe that God is just and, you know, what if a a child dies and, you know, he's got that. And I believe that he is just and he is loving and that I don't have to worry about a child that has gone on before they're at a point where they can make a choice themselves. That, that gets into the whole category of how many angels is, can dance on the head of a pin and those impossible questions, you know. Can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? You know, there, there's silly questions that people get into. And, and, and no, that's not a silly one in that sense. But you just got to realize that going back to the nature and character of God as he's revealed himself, he's got those questions. And I don't worry And I am absolutely going to bring comfort from God to someone who's lost a child. Having lost a child myself, I I know what that's like. And so, and I didn't lose her. I mean, she knew the Lord, so praise God, I know where she is. But my point is, is that that's not what this is about. This is about people who have the ability to make a choice. Paul says, I die daily. And he had been a Christian for a long time when he said that. So, Christian, let this be a tune-up. <coughs> Take the car in from time to time, get it tuned up, put some new plugs in there, man, get the, ask Ed, he'll tell you. Well, let it be a tune-up. Yeah, this is not new. If you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you know John three sixteen. you probably can recite it backwards. It's 25 words, it's not very big, but it's really big. 
We're going to finish this morning by taking communion. If the guys could come up and pass out the elements. Appreciate it. Go ahead and pass out both. Come on up, Charles. As the the elements are, are being passed, take a minute. The Word of God exhorts, encourages to examine ourselves. And I'll confess that one of the hardest things for us as humans to do is to examine, to do an honest self-examination. Communion is a time for that. Where are you at? What's going on in your life since the last time you came to the Lord's table? And if it was here, it was a month ago. But prayerfully, just... Do business with the Lord. This is a time, when Jesus said do this often, to do it in remembrance of me, it's because he knows, man, he knows that we have a tendency to sometimes slip a gear. Sometimes we start to loosen up. Sometimes we perhaps cool off a bit. Sometimes we drift. And that's the human condition. And it's one that he knows, and it's why he says, do this often and do it in remembrance of me, because you need to stay current with me. This is one of those intangible things. We have a tangible set of elements, these tangible elements, yes. Thank you. Here, get one of those two. Thank you. Tangible elements, but it's an intangible transaction. Earthly elements, heavenly transaction. It's a time of examining ourselves. It's also a time of rejoicing in all that he's done for us. Perhaps since the last time we took communion, perhaps in just reflecting this morning on John 3.16 and seeing, perhaps with fresh eyes, the depth of his love. That's a love unlike any other. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the body of Jesus, broken for us. As we looked at last week, that he became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. As we consider the clarity with which you approach us, certainly not with the confusion that Nicodemus had because we're on this side of the cross. We rejoice. We rejoice that you would love us that much. That way we were yet sinners. You died for us. And when you rose, you gave us the power to live in this life and forever. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body, which was broken for us, that we could live. Let's take the bread. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Knowing, part of what Jesus says there in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until all is fulfilled in my Father's kingdom. We're going to drink it with him when everything's wrapped up. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, he's going to serve us. And there will be a time where he takes that cup and we'll rejoice with him because of the work that he accomplished that guaranteed our entrance to heaven, that guaranteed us eternal life. Father, these truths are just mind-boggling. They're, I think of the psalmist, it is high, I cannot attain it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. If I rise up into heaven, you're there. If I descend to the lower parts of the earth, you're there. And Lord, that you're ever present with us in good times and tough times. We know that you say that you'll never leave us or forsake us and that that's accomplished through the work of the cross and through the resurrection and by your Holy Spirit who's given to those whom you sealed for eternity, for redemption. Lord, thank you that you've called us to be a people who belong to you. Lord, thank you that you've assembled us as one body of Christ here at little Calvary Chapel in Newburgh that we could simply be a sweet aroma to you, Lord. That's our prayer as a church. That's my prayer as an individual, Father, that we just want our lives to count for you, for your kingdom. We know that's only accomplished through your power working in us, and that's only because of the blood that Jesus bled on that cross. So as we drink this, we celebrate, Lord, not the ugliness of the cross, but the beauty of the cross as the instrument of our redemption, knowing, Lord, that you are the object of our faith and that our faith is conditioned on that work. How amazing. We praise you for your grace. Thank you, Father. Let's take the cup. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. The Lord bless you. Have a great week. Stick around for some fellowship, some coffee, some goodies in the back. If you have need of prayer, I'm available. Ed's here. Uh, be happy to come alongside. God bless. <laughs>